I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Have you been listening? Do you know what sport we're actually playing? Whoa, 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 I was number nine. Don't be putting me down at number 11. Back in the day, I defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice. The Paralympics almost has more power than the Olympics ever will be. I'm not really a fun kind of guy. I doesn't really like people. Come on then, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. We have some new hosts on the podcast today. Welcome to the podcast, Hayden and Avatar. Hayden, do you want to introduce our school? Techno Woods School is a school for children and young adults with autism. We have set this podcast up to provide our people with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Today, we're joined by a former rugby league player. He's played over 250 times for different clubs and has also played international rugby for Wales. Since retiring, he has starred in the hit TV show Peaky Blinders and has a brand new film being released soon. Welcome to the podcast, Keith Mason. How are you doing, guys? You all right? Yeah, we're doing very well. Thank you very much, Keith. Excellent. We're all excited to be here. After, oh, we've got some quick-fire questions, haven't we, Adam? So, yeah, Keith, we'd like to start off the podcast with a few quick-fire questions to kind of get to know you, break dice a little bit. So, quick-fire questions, whatever comes into your mind, that's the answer. Question one, favourite holiday destination? I enjoyed my time when I was uh, living in Australia. Probably, I enjoy visiting... America, really enjoyed Los Angeles. Uh, so I will probably have to say the USA. Night in or night out? Night in. Um, what's your favourite film? Can I, can I name a few? Go on, go for it. Absolutely. Uh, from, from being a kid, uh, Goonies has to stand out for me. Really good one. Uh, all the Rocky films. Uh, really loved Karate Kid. Uh, recent times, uh, for religious reasons, Passion of the Christ, which we actually watched last night about Jesus Christ. To be honest with you, I, I really enjoy watching films and movies. I just can't think of it, but I'm just thinking of, of some of the classics back in the day. Uh, love, love the Rocky films. They're yeah. the ones. That Great, films. 
Who is the most famous people in your mobile book? Uh, most famous people in my mobile phone, right? Uh, I've got who's a good who's a good friend of mine. Uh, Joe Calzaghe's in there. Mickey Rourke, film star. Uh, I've even got Dev in there from Coronation Street. <laughs> oh, wow, that's that's real fame. But Dev's called uh, Jimmy in real life, so uh, I think I'd have to put them free. Plus, they're all my friends, so they're not like I'm not stalking anything. So, <laughs> look at look back at your um, childhood. Who were your sporting hero, and do you want? Want always. to always want to be a rugby player? Yeah, I think the one good thing I was good at was rugby as a child. My mum put me into rugby at a young age, six, seven years old, as I had a lot of energy and I needed to channel that energy into something positive. And I always remember watching uh, the Wembley Cup finals as a young kid. And that's all you ever dreamt of playing in is in a, a Challenge Cup final. And people like Ellery Anley, who now I'm friends with, believe it or not. You know, we've, we've been out for dinner together and he was somebody who I looked up to who inspired me to think, I want to be like that guy, you know? Uh, and I think it's important that, you know, young children have people to look up to, mentors, whether the sports stars or humanitarians or people who give back. It's always important to have, have an idol, have, have, have an ideal to be like that person. And... Uh, yeah, I, I think all young kids need that inspiration. And my inspiration was was the, the Wigan back in the 90s and, and, and Witness and all them big players, the bigger, big-time players who played for them uh, inspired me. I also used to enjoy watching the Australians, uh, Mal Meninga, who was the Australian captain, big centre. Uh, people like Gordon Tallis and, and, and all them types of players did inspire me to, to become a, a rugby league player. I was just wondering, what were you like in school? <laughs> Not very good. <laughs> I was just wondering, you said, have lots of energy, put up, that's a euphemism. Yeah, no, listen, I, uh, it wasn't that I was a, a bad kid. I wasn't a, I wasn't a nasty bad kid. I, I, just, I went through a naughty phase as a young kid, and believe it or not, guys, you know, I was in a lot of trouble with, with the law, you know, and uh, thank God I came out the other side of that because... <clears throat> when I grew up, a lot of us young kids didn't have father figures about. Uh, we grew up in a council estate and, you know, generally when you go out your home, you know, you put your mum is not in control of what you do. So, you know, I, I started hanging around with, with, with children who were uh, absent fathers and got up to no good, but they just showed you love. And I did get in a lot of trouble with the police. Uh, it wasn't till... I was around 14 years of age. I went to court the very last time and I went to court quite a lot of times for quite a few things that I wasn't quite proud of. But <clears throat> the great thing is I turned it around. You know, I turned it all around and I came out of court in Bradford when I was 14 and I could see where my life was heading and I could see that it wasn't heading anywhere good. And I just had this profound, uh, it was like an epiphany, like, the Lord spoke to me and said that this is your time now. You need to really book your ideas up and go after your dream. But if you don't do it now, you're never going to get it. And from the very next day, I just kind of sacrificed all my friends, cut everybody off. I had this tunnel vision that I wanted to be a professional rugby league player. 
And, you know, don't get me wrong, that following year, I went back to Jules which is my local team. We won the league, the first division with the under-16s, the first time in 25 years, I think it was. And then I went, got selected for Yorkshire. And then from Yorkshire, I got selected for England schoolboys. When we came back from France for playing for the England schoolboys, which is the best 25 players in the country, there was only me and Wayne Price who hadn't been signed. And I went to Bradford, Castleford and, and Leeds, trialled all them three teams and every one of them rejected me. Uh, and I just, you know, I felt like quitting. When I went to Leeds and I remember Dean Bell saying to me, uh, Keith, you know, we're, I don't think you're ever going to be a Super League player. Now, this was after two other rejections from two other clubs. Most kids would have thrown the towel in and give in. And uh, I didn't, thank God. But I wouldn't be here speaking to you right now. And I think any advice to kids out there is that you just keep persevering because going after your dreams takes a lot of work, a lot of time, and it takes a lot of failures. So perseverance in life is the key. And if you're going after your dreams, you sacrifice all the things that you don't need to be doing, going out with your friends and wasting time, you know, with bad company and making the sacrifices to be the best person and the best athlete you can be to put yourself in the best position to succeed. Even if you don't hit your goal, at least you'd be proud of your effort. And along the way, you're going to build resilience and mental strength and fortitude anyway. So look at them three failures. You're not good enough. You're not quite ready. I don't think you're going to play a Super League, but I persevered. And Wakefield, uh, give me a lifeline. And I never looked back. You know, uh, ironically, when Melbourne Storm came back in, uh, came in to sign me at 19, when I was playing first team football at Wakefield, Leeds Rhinos, the team that wasn't going to sign me and said I'd never play Super League. The actual first team came in and offered me a four-year deal. So, you know, that's uh, it's like rubbing salt in the wound. But, you know, I said, no, thank you. Uh, you know, there was only Adrian Morley over in Australia. And I went over there. And probably the best time I've ever had in my rugby league career. I used to live with uh, the, the one of the greatest players of all time, Cameron Smith. And, and, and Billy Slater were there and all them kids were coming through at the same time. So just the experience to go to Australia and, uh, you know, obviously become a better player because I came back and signed for St. Helens, but become a better human being just for the experience. You made your debut for, for Wakefield in 2000. So yeah. what was that like to make your professional debut? It's just like any, any uh, young kid who's got a dream to play uh, a sport at the highest level. And I was, I, was really, I was really young. I was 17. And uh, I got the call up the week before by Tony Kemp. And uh, they, they put me in against Huddersfield Giants, actually. It was, that was my debut. And it was just like a dream come true. All the hard work I put in over the last couple of seasons. I got the player of the year and the, player, player of the, the players player of the year for the Wayfield Academy. And I was just progressing through the ranks. And I remember playing at Huddersfield Giants. And it was just surreal because back then, you know, I was still a boy. I, f- I still felt like a kid. And uh, to be playing against these big, big, big men was something that I'll never forget. So you never forget your debut. And then obviously, you know, I just kicked on from there. And within 12 months, I ended up going to Australia. So I kind of progressed quite quick as a, as a, as a youngster. Uh, I made my debut for Wales at 18. And I got the phone call the night before. So I didn't, I didn't even train with the team. I went down to Wrexham. Uh, I remember 
going into the changing rooms and Kieran Cunningham were there, who was somebody who I had on my wall on the poster, someone I looked up to. And I remember him being in the toilet, being sick, but I didn't realise it was Kieran. And Kieran came out the toilet and he's wiping his mouth. And I think, well, this guy's one of my idols and he's he's more nervous than me. Uh, and I remember Lee Breers being there. Uh, and Yestin Harris, I think, played. Uh, and we played England. And we had about four Super League players and the rest of the players were championship players. We played against a full-fledged England team, which had school for Andy Farrell, Paul Deak and Radlinski, Paul Wellens, all these fantastic players. And we was actually beating England 26-10 at half-time. They, unfortunately for us, they came back in the second half and they beat us by about six points. It ended up being about 36-30. But in that game, I got the man of the match for, for Wales. And uh, that's where Melbourne saw me, uh, Melbourne Storm. And that's how I ended up going over to Australia. From that one performance, playing yeah. for Wales, uh, got me to go play in the NRL, which I think I was the youngest ever British player to go there. I was only 19. Obviously, rugby league is probably not as, as popular as rugby union. Was there ever a decision for you between league and union, or, or was it always league? Uh, rugby league is, uh, to me, it's the better game. Uh, I have tried rugby union. <laughs> there's, there's just too many rules and too many stop, stopping and starting for me. Uh, and obviously, rugby league is born and bred from where I'm from. I live in West Yorkshire, so that is a hotbed of rugby league. I, I'm guessing if I'd have lived down south, maybe. Uh, my issue I probably wouldn't have done any good in, in the uh, boarding schools because I'd have probably been kicked out uh, <laughs> I understand that rugby union guys have to get GCSEs and all that kind of stuff to get their uh, scholarships in rugby rugby union uh, but I think I, I was born to play rugby league you know I'm, I'm, I'm a fit guy I still look after myself and it's just uh, it's not as popular international wise but when you come to uh, club level you know the standard of skill and fitness, Super League and NRL are, are, are way ahead of Rubunion. Uh, I don't Rubunion fans to fall out of me, by the way. <laughs> but that's no, my opinion. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like internationally, yeah, I completely agree. But club level, like yeah. it's on Sky Sports, the, the rugby, and it's more like a football game, isn't it? The, the fans are uh, really into it and they're cheering and shouting and singing. And yeah. I think as well, the fitness wise, obviously, you've got no scrums as such no line outs so the game doesn't stop really does it whereas rugby union it's more stop start the rucks you can have malls and all that sort of yeah. stuff whereas rugby league you just yeah, don't really stop exactly so rugby union is very strategic rugby league is very strategic but there's no stoppages for like you can you can keep going for 20 minutes without a stoppage and what that shows you you're having like a, a, a rally in tennis and you keep going and going until someone makes a mistake. And that's what rugby league is. And it really tests your fitness, your mental, your, your mentality, basically, and your fortitude and your resilience. Whereas if you're stopping all the time, you're not really going to be tested. And if you look at some of the rugby league players now, uh, James Bentley and James Roby and that, they're coming up with like 70, 80 tackles a game. That is probably three times as much as a whole rugby union yeah. team. Or you know what I mean? It's uh, yeah, it's two totally different games. You know, I have a lot of respect for for rugby union, and it's come a long way. The international stage, we could learn something from that because the international level in rugby league, it's a good level. You know, you got Australia, New Zealand, England. You got Tonga, some of these other big nations coming in. Uh, for me, the marketing side is very, very poor compared to rugby union. Rugby union have absolutely nailed it. 
but yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of both sports. They've both got fantastic athletes playing in both codes, and you know, there's there's been players from rugby league gone off to rugby union and done really well, and and vice versa. Uh, Scott Gibbs, at, you know, St Helens. So we'd like to share some of the fantastic messages that we've received. Our first one comes from Ryan in Perth, Australia, who says, this is my favourite podcast I listen to. The range of guests on the show are fantastic. What Adam and Nigel are doing for the students at the school is amazing. Keep it up. And your next message... Come, our next message. And our next message come for Lucy in Florida, who said, super podcast, boys. What's an amazing idea. I love, I love listening every week. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your messages. And if you've got any more messages, then you can find us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast, or you can email us at twssportspodcast at hotmail.com and we'll try and read as many out during the shows as we can. What's challenged you most about playing and living in Australia? And do you ever think want to stay out there? So, yeah, obviously it was a big challenge going to Australia. I was 19 years old, made my Welsh debut. I was just established, establishing myself as a, as a Super League player at a young age and playing prop, which is very young, uh, to be playing week in, week out at Super League as, a, as an 18, 19-year-old. Uh, but I just, I just knew that going to Australia was such a bold move for me. But going there on my own, <laughs> I'll tell you a story. When I first got there, I lived with Cameron Smith and Jake Webster. And I remember the first night I got there, I went upstairs to bed and I just had this realisation that I was 12,000 miles away from home and I just burst out crying. <laughs> Absolutely in tears. You know, I obviously I lived with my mum all my life and I understood that I just can't, jump on a bus or get in a car and go see my mum now. So, you know, it was just, I had to get used to that. And I think the first year there was quite difficult because I was trying to acclimatise to the weather, really warm in Melbourne in summertime. And I thought I was really, really fit. But when I got there, I was pretty much bang average. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the season after, I was probably one of the fittest in the, in, the, in the club. And I was, you know, I was waving the British flag for us Brits. And I was a young kid, played around about 10, 10 NRL games altogether uh, over in Australia. But just the experience over there. And when you come about saying, would I have stayed there? Melbourne wanted me there for the next 10 years. John Rebo, who was the uh, chief executive there, and Andrew Johns, uh, Chris Johns, sorry, was a big fan of mine. Obviously, they paid money to get me out there. But it wasn't until the second year Someone mentioned about me wanting to go back home. I never wanted to go back to England. And uh, someone threw a spanner in the works. And then the Super League clubs got it, got us a, a sniff of that. And then all the big clubs started coming in and asking for my services. Uh, Bradford, Hull, uh, Leeds, Wakefield and St. Helens. Now, St. Helens is one of the teams that I admired. And they, they was watching me as a young kid who was very interested in me. And they were the champions. So they looked like the natural team to pick. You know, obviously they had Schofield playing and, and Cunningham and, and, you know, Darren Albert and uh, Sean Long. They're some brilliant players. And it was just an opportunity for me to come back home now. I've learnt my trade over there, become a better player, a better human being, much fitter 
and they offered me a deal I couldn't re refuse, really. So do I have any regrets about coming back? No, I don't, because if I didn't come back, I wouldn't have had my son, which is Lucas Mason. And Lucas Mason, my son, now he's playing for Wigan. He's only 15, but he's, uh, he's a tremendous talent. He's got all the potential to go all the way. Uh, they really like him at Wigan. And I'm like a fan now of his, his career and supporting him and guiding him and mentoring him. Mentor, mentoring him. So, the, you know, the great thing about having a son who plays rugby league and me playing at a high level for a long time means that I can help him not make the mistakes I made and guide him and uh, just uh, support him. You then came back to the UK and played for St Helens where you won the Challenge Cup final against Wigan. Can you tell yeah. us about that? Yeah, so obviously the Challenge Cup final is something that I always dreamt of playing in. I got my when I went to St. Helens, I signed in 2003. They were struggling struggling a little bit back then. And that's one of the main reasons why they wanted to sign me, to bring me in as a prop. I was a young prop. I came back and Al Pack was uh, myself, Cunningham, Kieran Cunningham, Darren Britt, uh, Chris Joint, Paul School for, you know, it was pretty impressive, impressive pack. And we finished quite strong that year. And then the year after, 2004, was a really big year for St. Helens. Drew Bradford in the first round or the fifth round of the Challenge Cup. And then from Bradford, we drew Leeds. And then from Leeds, we drew Hull. And then from Hull, we drew Huddersfield. And then we, and then we got to the final to play Wigan. So what the great thing about that year was we pretty much got writ off. In every single round, we played a top five Super League team. Now, it's a bit like FA Cup, Challenge Cup. You can, you can draw non-league teams. You can draw teams from the fifth division. But the look of the bounce, we drew every top team. <laughs> so every game was like a final. Uh, and then to get to play Wigan, Wigan and St. Helens is probably the biggest derby in rugby league. And it's just over the brow, right? They're right next door to each other. And to get to the final and play Wigan and then eventually beat Wigan in the final was like, it was just amazing. You know, you just couldn't write it. Uh, and I got to play in the final. You know, we played at the Millennium. Millennium Stadium, I think it was uh, 78,000 packed out. Uh, it was a red hot uh, May, summer's day in May, bank holiday May. And uh, it was daytime. And just the build up to the final was fantastic. And I remember Chris Joint telling me, like, Keith, you know, the Challenge Cup, it's bigger than Super League, mate. It's been around 100 years. And, you know, I didn't quite get the concept of it until I, I was actually in the build up to the week. It's actually the week of the final, which is the most memorable because you leave the club on Wednesday, Thursday, go down to Wales and you bond, you bond together for, for three days. And in that bonding and build up to the final, uh, it's just amazing. It really is. And some of the memories I'll never forget. But on game day, uh, you know, I woke up that day and we're going to the bus and we're all getting on the bus in Cardiff uh, and I just felt so relaxed which is quite strange because this is my first Challenge Cup final I've just turned 22 I was starting the final as a prop and I remember we, we came to Cardiff and the, and the streets were just full of red and white it's like 50, 60,000 people you could not drive through the streets it was just crammed and you know this is what you dream of as a kid I used to play in a bowling green in the park uh, and we used to call it Wembley. And we, we, we had two bowling greens and the other one was called Old Trafford. So to be 
that young kid who used to wear a Canberra Raiders shirt and play against kids a lot older than me. And we used to go hard. We used to absolutely smash each other, right? Uh, we, used, we used to even play in concrete. Not right. <laughs> uh, so, and for going from playing in the Bowling Greens to now playing at Millennium Stadium, which is probably my favourite ground I've played at, obviously for good reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Just pulling up at the stadium and getting there, I was so relaxed. And, you know, we were playing really, really well. Our team were playing really, really well. And it just was a perfect day. You know, we went out there. Uh, we scored early on. We came out to the fans. The fireworks were blasting off. And I remember my mum my being up in the in the crowd and someone told me she was crying her eyes out. You know, so it was... It was a monumental, monumental moment for not just me, but for my mum, because she'd fought for me uh, since being a little boy. Uh, so it was a victory for all of us, for all the family. Uh, going out there, I started the game. Uh, we got a try early on. I think it was Willie Talal off a, off a we chased a kicker down. Uh, Jason Hooper chased a kicker down, hit the ball, landed into Lee Gilmore's hands. Lee Gilmore passed it to Willie Talal, went on the post, and uh, we got off to a good start. Uh, just before half time, I went off. They brought me back on. I had a ten minute break, so it was about ninety degrees. And I remember putting Paul Wellens under the post, and that put us fourteen points up. And that was a nice lead to go into the second half. We came out in the second half, and uh, we ended up going to win that game twenty eight fourteen. I think it was. Wow. Uh, and just what a what a buzz! I remember we knew we were going to win, but the atmosphere packed house and I remember Sean Long running at me as a hooter went and he jumped in my arms and there's a picture of it and, and I picked him up like that you know and it was just uh, just fantastic it was just amazing it really was like a dream come true and I remember picking the trophy up and when I picked it up all my life flashed before my eyes this young kid who everybody said he'd never make it who was in all this trouble and all this conflict I turned it all around to be there and I that was when I actually felt like a winner. Yeah. Uh, you can never take that away from us. You know, we made history that day. I got my winner's medal and, uh, you know, I shared it with my family. And and that was probably one of my, my greatest rugby league days ever. Now, I, I, I did play in two more finals at Wembley and Twickenham. Uh, luckily, I lost both, but I got the win out of the way the first time round. So, yeah, that was, a, that was an awesome day, mate. And... Uh, you know, all their work all over the years had come to that that moment in time and uh, to leave that field a winner was something special. After our season at Castleford Tigers, you set at Pudgerfield for six years. What are you memories of your time there? Uh, so, so so, what happened is I left St. Helens, I went alone to Castleford. Uh, I was still a Saints player and then my loan time at Castleford were cut short because Wigan, Wigan actually came in they wanted to sign me and I trained with Wigan and I uh, end up pulling my quad a little bit so that kind of sent me back to Castleford and Uddersfield came in they gave me a lifeline they offered me a two year deal obviously I wasn't very happy about leaving Saints you know but I'd been really poorly it, it, at the beginning of 2005 I actually got sectosemia in my leg so I got rushed to the hospital and they, pu- they pulled all this pus out of my leg. If I, had been, if I hadn't gone to hospital two or three days later, I probably would have died with the infection. Like, so when I came back in 2005 for Saints, I was behind the ball. You know, I wasn't 
myself, I didn't feel as as fit and as strong as I had done the pre-prior season. And I think that was one of the main reasons why uh, Daniel Anderson wanted to loan me out. Huddersfield came in, gave me a lifeline. Uh, enjoyed my time at Huddersfield Giants. You know, I was the starting prop. It was seven years actually I was there, and uh, I played for played around about 150 games. I played in two Challenge Cup finals. First, uh, Huddersfield Giants. The first one was Twickenham. We played Saints and uh, we lost that game, unfortunately. And then the second game was in 2009. Uh, we played Warrington Wolves. Uh, we was the favourites and uh, we uh, lost the game. I, I think that was down to the experience. Not many players in our team had played in finals before. I think it was only me and Kevin Brown. Uh, who played in a Challenge Cup before and Brett Hodgson had played in a Grand Final and Wellington just got a good bounce of the ball and uh, we could never catch him up so it was a dream to play at Wembley you know Wembley was a, a, another one ticked off the bucket list to play at Wembley uh, but unfortunately it wasn't our day but I did after after that game I actually went to a nightclub and met Mickey Rock so it kind of worked out in my favour <laughs> You know, it kind of uh, gave me a new vision about the acting. And then uh, eight years later, I've just produced my first film. So I've got my premiere in, in November. So things always work out. So we've recently teamed up with a company called Surprise Shirts. They sell mystery football shirts from any football team from around the world. Check out their website, www.surpriseshirts.co.uk. One of the shirts behind us is from Belgrano FC, and a fact about them is Belgrano Stadium called Julio Cesar Villadra, which is located in Barrio Alberti in the central area of the city of Coboda with a capacity of 35,000 spectators. Thanks for that, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of hard words for me to say there. I like to make it work, Nigel. So you mentioned 2009 was a very good year for you. Am I right in yeah. saying you won the Coaches Player of the Year, Directors Player of the Year, Man of Steel Award, you said you got the yeah. Challenge Cup final. Was yeah. that probably peak Keith Mason that year, would you say? Yeah, I would say, yeah. I think 2009 was a really standout year for me. I had a really strong, strong season. I'm very lucky to miss out on the Great Britain selection for whatever known reason. But then obviously meeting a movie star, then, you know... Uh, Ended up being in a movie a couple of years later. It was a really good year for me. But, you know, I really worked hard. And I think as a front row forward, you probably come into your prime around 27, 28. And I was 27 at the time. So I was I was kind of hitting my straps. And, I, yeah, I did finish off winning the Coach Player of the Year. It was probably the best year Huddersfield have had in Super League. Uh, we finished, I think, second in the league and we got knocked out in the playoffs by Catalan. And uh, I actually went down to the GQ Awards to as a guest for Mickey Rourke. I remember Jason Statham being there, me, Jason and Mickey partying. And it was it was actually a school night. It, I was supposed to be training the next day and <laughs> I, said, I said I was poorly, but, you know, obviously it was in the papers. I got found out. I got fined. And uh, I ended up missing two games. And one of those games was a really important game. But... By going to the GQ Awards and befriending Mickey Rock, it did open up more doors for me into the acting world, which obviously you guys know now. I'm just I'm I'm on that ladder and I'm getting getting pretty good roles, and I've just produced and uh, booked my first film premiere. I mentioned that you met uh, Mickey Rock, Jason Statham, 
headed your direction towards acting. So what exactly what was the turning point that actually made you think, yeah, I'm going to give acting a try? I was still playing. I was still playing for the Shield uh, when I was friends with Mickey Rock. Uh, every time Mickey flew out to London, uh, I go down and meet him, go for dinners and stuff. And we actually went to the Jonathan Ross show, the, the last ever Jonathan Ross show, which was on BBC One. And Mickey was speaking to Jonathan Ross about me uh, being friends with him and, and uh, coming up with an idea for a film, which was called The Welshman, which was originally about Gareth Thomas. Uh, Gareth came out, obviously the first sportsman to come out uh, as a gay athlete. But that never that film never t- took off because Mickey was wanting to play Gareth Thomas. He was wanting to play a 36-year-old rugby player. As we know, Mickey was probably about 65 then, so, you know, it's going to be quite hard for him to play a rugby player. But uh, listen, I helped him with the script, you know, I helped him uh, with a lot of things uh, regarding the script. And if it wasn't for me, there would be no idea about making a rugby film because I was in Mickey's ear. Let's, you know, let's do a film. And, you know, he spoke about the sporting life. And uh, if you don't, if you haven't seen the sporting life, it's a fantastic film with uh, Richard Harris. Uh, and he plays, he, he rents uh, a woman's home in Wakefield and he plays rugby league. Uh, it was an Oscar performance, I think. And it wasn't until a couple of years later, I was at Huddersfield. I just won a high court case against Huddersfield. And a week later, Mickey gave me a call and I said, hey, Mickey, all right, Mickey, any idea, mate? And he's like, hey, kid, I'm, I'm going to be in uh, England next week in London and I'm going to be in a movie and I've got a gig for you, mate. Do you want to be in the movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> what do you mean in the movie? He went, oh, you want, you want to start in the movie? I've got a role for you, man. And I think I thought you lied. And I was like... <laughs> What? It was just one of those uh, surreal phone calls. You know, all the hairs at the back of my neck stood on end because I wasn't friends with Mickey Rock because I wanted to be an actor. It was just cool to be friends with a movie star, full stop, you know? And obviously Mickey and my sports sports people. And I turned around and Mickey goes, well, when's, when's this film? He goes, oh, it's next week. I went, all right, cool. He goes, are we in? You want to do it? I went, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know what day it was. I was playing for Castleford, and then obviously, yeah, games coming up. I was still in the mix, uh, the the uh, middle of the season. I just thought, wow, this that's a bit. I uh, come from left field, and I remember going to Daryl Powell and telling Daryl Powell uh, the night before I went down to film, I had to go to the hospital. You know, I had an appointment. <laughs> another another little white lie, but really, I was, you know, I was coming up back into my career, and uh, I thought there was an opportunity I had to grab. Went down to London. I remember going into uh, getting my... I basically played a guy called Mr. Steiner. I was a henchman. I had about 13 lines in the film. I believe Arnold Schwarzenegger had about 13 lines in Terminator. So, you know, I was off to <laughs> start. So I came downstairs, had my suit on, had my tie, uh, had my earpiece in, and I walked in, and Mickey was getting his makeup on, and I walked in, and he went, you look great, kid. You look great. And I was like, what's going on, Mickey? Give him a cuddle, embraced him. And uh, he was putting makeup on and stuff. He goes, you don't need no makeup, kids, you're fine. And this, this was just after a very stressful court case, which had won. Uh, but it took a lot out of me. And it was just nice to get a, just get away from that stressful situation, uh, which was a stressful year. My very last year in rugby league, you know, I, I lost my license. Uh, I lost my job at, at Huddersfield Giants. And, you know, I was kind of blackballed. Uh, but to then, then on to persevere and win the case and then star in the film was... Uh, you know, there's a silver lining in every, in every cloud, so I just kind of embraced it and enjoyed it. Uh, I did the film. 
uh, 13 lines, thought I did okay, you know, uh, speaking back and forth with Mickey. I enjoyed the actual experience. And I remember Joe Calzaghi, who was a good friend of mine, boxer, he came over uh, from Paddington over to Knightsbridge and he came to see me and I goes, hey, Dean, Joe, you all right? And he's, yeah, yeah, Keith, how, how's the filming? He goes, no, I can't believe Mickey had put me in this film. <laughs> so he'll have to, because Joe's, Joe were friends with Mickey and uh, we just got together and, you know, had a cup of tea and all that kind of stuff. And I remember the director walking in with, with a big bag and he walked in with the bag and he put the bag down and he opened up the bag and it had like, it was packed with money and it was Mickey's bag. What's in there, Mickey? He went, ah, oh, it's about 300 grand in there, kid. Eight hours work. I went, that's today's work. He went, yeah, and just straight away, like a bull went off in my head. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Like it's about this acting like I did about sport. Maybe I've got a gig. Uh, not knowing it, it took me nearly eight years to start getting <laughs> getting a role on, uh, which Mickey explained to me, it's a tough gig to get into. But uh, I was very blessed that Mickey gave me that opportunity. It gave me a vision for after rugby. Not many rugby league players get, because I don't believe that there's enough in place for, for, for any sportsman, especially rugby league players, to set them up for after sport. Because when I retired from sport, like many other sports stars, I struggled because of the structure were gone. The discipline was slipping. I wasn't doing what made me great. And that was working hard. Uh, and I kind of just slipped for quite a while. I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. You know, I, I, I suffered with depression. And even though I was in denial, I did. I wasn't in a good place. I wasn't happy in my heart because all I've ever done since I was six years old was play rugby and then retire at 31, which I was still rel relatively young. I had quite a bit of money, but end of the day, money doesn't bring you happiness and I needed structure. I struggled for a couple of years and then I met my beautiful partner, Riona Kelly. Uh, Riona suffered a spinal stroke, became paralyzed. Uh, I was doing a little bit of personal training at the time. She reached out to me. I believe she reached out to about 20 different personal trainers and none of them uh, would have anything to do with her because of her injury. The funny thing is she didn't actually tell me the extent of her injury. She just said that she's got bad legs. She turned up to the gym and she shuffled that bum out of the car and she had these uh, crutches and I said, you know, you know, what's wrong, Riona? What have you done to your legs? She went, I forgot to tell you, Keith, you know, I had a spinal stroke. I'm paralyzed. Uh, okay. Well, I'm a bit of an optimist, right? So the fact that she turned up and drove 15 miles to train and work out was something that stood out to me and it was admirable. So I says, well, you know what? We're going to go in there. We're going to train. And I sat down on the bum. I had a discussion with her, I had a chat with her. Uh, you know, she was, she was so young, you know, 34 years old. Uh, she was a deputy editor at school and she was a fitness freak. And we started training I believe I trained her for around six weeks. I actually helped to take her first steps and helped to squat, you know, and uh, I then realized that this isn't just a normal trainer training somebody, uh, a client. It was much more than that. But at the time, I was very professional with Riona. It was obviously, she was still technically married and all that kind of stuff. So we trained for six weeks. She reached, she reached out to me and said, uh, look, Keith, you know, I'm, I can't train anymore. I've been advised not to buy my physio. Uh, she was having problems at home and I just wished her, wished her the best. It wasn't until about four months later, she put a post up on Facebook. She departed from a business partner. She sounded down. 
And I just reached out to her and I said, I hope you're okay, Riona. You know, if you want to catch up for a coffee, I'd love to. And she got back to me and she said, yeah, let's do it. Are you free tonight? <laughs> I said, uh, all right. Yeah, cool. No worries. We'll go for a coffee. So we went for a coffee, went to my friend's Turkish restaurant. We sat down. It wasn't the trainer this time. It was Keith. It was, you know, I could let my guard down. And we were speaking about faith and God and the universal energy and stuff like that. And, uh, she actually tells me that she fell for me that night. And uh, we just went from strength to strength. Uh, she was nearly running, you know, and I've always been a guy that likes helping people. And I've let, I've helped a lot of wrong people, don't get me wrong, from her life. But she absorbed everything I had for her. And uh, obviously we became partners, boyfriend and girlfriend, if you like. And uh, we've overcome so much, you know, uh, Unfortunately, a couple of years into our relationship, she had another spinal stroke and she nearly died. She was in the kids' bedroom on the 29th of December, just before New Year's Eve. Uh, she was moving her bed and she bent over and she couldn't stand up straight. So I had to run into the bedroom. The kids came and goes, oh, my mummy, my mummy can't stand up. So I says, we want to stand up, stand up. And her back was, she was stood like this and her back was hunched over like that. So I realised something was not right and I picked her up and as I picked her up, her leg went limp. Even though she's paralysed, she can still move her legs because she's she still has nerves attached. So she's not a complete. She's incomplete. And I saw her leg just collapse. And I, as I was running to the bedroom with her, all one side of her face started sloping down. And I just laid her on the bed and we ran the ambulance, which took about 90 minutes to get here. Uh, and she's just literally dying in front of me. And I was praying to God not to take her. And uh, I was trying to keep her awake and all one side of her face started sloping down. It's awful, guys. But you know what? All them years I trained and, and uh, put myself in uncomfortable situations and being rejected and, and keep persevering and give me that strength for her. I remember the, the ambulance got there. All one side of her face was sloped down. I was very angry because, it, you know, I ne pretty much nearly lost my partner. Uh, we remember getting her into a, into a chair and she was in excruciating pain with her, with her spine. And we got her into the ambulance and she screamed that loud that she fainted. It was just an awful experience, but I had to stay strong. You know, and I remember getting to the hospital and she said to me, uh, you can leave me now, Keith, I'm no good to you. And I says, that's not going to happen. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make sure you get out of this hospital and we're going to walk again. Because her family before I met her had all walked out on her. And I wasn't going to be another statistic. So my goal was to get her back up and get her out of that hospital. So all the gains we made over them two years were gone. She literally couldn't move. And over the three-week period, I was with her every single day. I dropped the kids off at school. I go to hospital. I go in there. I get hold of her hand. And I encourage her. And I said, listen, we're going to get out of here, baby, okay? One day at a time, we're going to do our best. We're going to move your hands. We're going to move your fingers. We're going to try sit up. We're going to try stand up. And slowly but surely, we got from sitting up to even opening her hand. I had people coming in and praying for her. And uh, I documented our comeback in hospital. And it was just impacting people all over the world. And <clears throat> she came out of hospital on my birthday. I turned up and she was ready to go home. She couldn't even, she couldn't even stand up. She goes, like, we're going home. And I was saying to her that while she was in hospital, we're going to get out of this hospital and we're going to have the best year of his life. Because I believe that 
if you put out positive affirmations and you believe it, it happens. We went, we flew to Chicago just three weeks after she left hospital. We was booked in for a motivational talk at the, uh, what was it? it was a facility in Illinois, Chicago. And she blew him away. She spoke to about 500 people for 24 minutes. And just six weeks before that, she was having a stroke on my bed. So anything's possible when you have belief and faith and never give up. And we believe in Jesus Christ. You know, we pray every single day. And it's important to pray because everybody goes through tough times. Everybody's going through a storm. Even you guys right now, you have your, you have your problems. But it's about doing the right things every single day to, to overcome them problems. And uh, our story has reached, I think it's had over nearly half a billion hits on, on uh, online or social media. You know, we have over a million people followers on TikTok. We have a book coming out next year. Uh, it's going to be our story. Uh, memoir and it's going to be a self-help book as well to show people how we overcame what we overcame because the this, this story is not just about a couple and love it's about perseverance and never giving up and the world right now has been in such a tough time and and people send beautiful messages out to me and Riona about how we've changed our lives men women kids and uh, I think the book will be a game changer and we're also looking at doing a reality tv show actually uh, so that could be on Netflix next year. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, our story is just, you know, we never intended to be this uh, inspiring couple, but it's just worked out that I think God is working through us to to show people that anything's possible. Yeah, Keith, your story is is so inspirational. And I've seen your social medias and the story of, of not just you or your wife, but your whole family is, is really, really inspirational. And as you said, it's going to help so many people who are going through similar things or might not be going through any sort of, of, of trouble as such, but will see you and the, the journey you've gone, uh, the fitness journey you're going on as well and, and say inspire so many people. So well done to you and your, your whole family. It was really, really, really inspirational. Oh, thank you, mate. You're in a TV show, Peaky Blinders. Yeah. What was that like to be in such an iconic TV show? You know, you know at the time, guys, I didn't really know much about Peaky Blinders. It was... The second series, uh, episode six, uh, at that time, I wasn't really disciplined, you know, and I remember getting this role on Peaky Blinders. It was a speaking role and I was a role bodyguard. Uh, and it was the other side of Manchester where we were filming. Obviously, it was just a little bit after I didn't skin traffic. I didn't really take the acting serious like I should have done. And I remember them ringing me up and, and saying, look, Keith, you, you're in tomorrow, you're... you're uh, We've got your speaking role. You've got a few lines to say tomorrow. And I just made it an excuse up that I just didn't want to go. Uh, I, I, like my mum was in hospital or something, something that's stupid anyway. But that's where I was in my life at that time, going through that struggle. And uh, But yeah, coming back to, you, to the question, it was really fun. I enjoyed it. You know, I was around these fantastic actors. I was there for a day. Obviously, the other couple of days I didn't turn up, but it was just... Uh, it was a nice experience. And you know what? I'd love to have another crack at it. I definitely would. And you say you didn't know at the start, obviously no one did how big that show would be, but it's probably one of the biggest TV shows of the last sort of what, 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Is there another series coming on? Are you involved in that? or? Is it, is it- uh, well, obviously, my film, Imperative. This baby. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, 
Yeah, so obviously we've we've done this the first film. Uh, we've got about maybe twenty distribution companies wanting to uh, come to the film premiere. So then after after the film premiere, we'll, we will get the best deal with the distribution companies, and we'll possibly get uh, Imperative onto Netflix. Now, if you think of Lufa with Idris Elba, but like a northern version, mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about with Imperative. So I play uh, Detective Jack Sullivan who is the detective who is walking around with a lot of, lot of demons. His wife disappears before the film starts. She disappears, she goes to work and never returns home. So my character kind of has mental health problems. He, he, he suffers with anxiety and depression. And every time he comes home, he self-medicates by drinking himself to sleep. And that's the vicious cycle for, for Jack Sullivan. Also, whilst hunting down a serial killer, vigilante serial killer who's taking out not very nice people, but end of the day, I'm the cop and he's the bad guy, and I need to catch him. So, this is my first time producing the film, uh, producing the film, and my first time leading the film. And you know, we want to do the TV series. We want to. We've got the second film already written up, but if we could do uh, maybe a six-part series, which is very doable, and also, you know, I'm at that age now where I can really shine. I've got some projects coming up in America. I've got another film this year called Cookster, where I play. Uh, a real-life villain. So it's my first time playing a biopic character. Uh, that's probably November, December time. And also I've got Ruby Blood, which is my comic book series, which is uh, just doing really well. I was reading about your you, uh, Ruby Blood, and yeah. apparently you, you've got a script for, a screen, a script for that, haven't you? So this is Ruby Blood. Maybe you've met in uh, film as well, maybe? Yeah. So Ruby Blood really uh, initially came from a film script which I'd written with a Norwegian writer. It was about a young rugby league player who becomes a star, who's like an entrepreneur, kind of like a big star. He's into charities and stuff, and he's a public figure. And the Russians are looking for a family to kidnap for ransom, right? And David King, as a young boy, was an orphan, and he was brought up by this mentor called Johnny Bronson. And Johnny Bronson teaches him skills like martial arts, boxing, how to shoot guns, to protect himself, right? But he didn't have to use any of his skills until his family gets kidnapped. So look at something like Dyad slash Taken slash 007 slash rugby player. Uh, and I actually sent the script down to Pinewood and, and I, I, I spoke to a woman called Deborah Wooten and they read the script and they was talking about how much it would take to get this film made and they really liked it. So then that's in a blinkers off into my head, thinking, if you look at all Marvel movies and, and comic book movies, it all starts with a comic book. The, the origin story starts with how this person became Wolverine, how this person became Thor, how this person became David King. So that's when I did the research and created the first ever rugby league comic endorsed by Super League. Yeah. And... David King in the book is a young kid and it shows him how he meets Johnny Bronson and how he overcomes being in trouble with the police. Does it sound familiar? It, it does sound familiar. <laughs> I was going to ask if he's a part biopic. Yeah. So, so the comic is actually, the, the young kid is actually based on my, my life story, believe it or not. Uh, and how he overcame it and how he became a star. And then at the end of the comic, his family get kidnapped and then it goes into the second edition, which is Ruby Blood 2 which has been, there's been an old on the release of that, 
but that will be coming out probably next month or the month after. But the artwork for the second one is fantastic. Uh, we've, we've even got Joe Calzaghe in there as a character. Okay. We've got some of the biggest stars uh, in the world from Super League and, and the NRL. Uh, we've got a clothing line with O'Neill's, uh, which is Rugby Blood. So, yeah, ultimately, I want to do the film and I want to do the anime. Right. So, 10 years ago, Keith, so 2011, you're still playing rugby. Was this yeah. ever a thought or has this kind of been chances that you've taken and just gone with? Was, it, was this ever the plan? No, no, never the plan. Never the plan. Uh, obviously, through when I came up with this idea, you know, my missus had just suffered a spinal stroke. So that, that gave me a motivation to do something and give back. Uh, and that's where Rugby Book came from. Obviously, being the first to do it uh, was something I'm quite proud of. But like you said, great things take time. Don't be surprised that you'll be seeing Rugby Book on, on a screen in the next five years. Uh, and who better to play David King than myself? So, <clears throat> no, you know what? Like, being an actor is, a, is creative, but I have a creative mindset where obviously being a sportsman, you're creative in your own way as being an athlete, but learning all these stuff is all self-taught. I ain't read no books about producing films. It's just with my bare hands. And then obviously getting other people to believe in my vision and them joining in on the quest of creating something quite special like Ruby Blood. But the future is bright, you know, and, uh, you know, Ruby Blood, Ruby Blood is about perseverance and about a kid who never gives up. And I think that's important for society to see something like that and to see some truth in it because the, the actual character is based on a real-life person, a real-life sports person who's gone in from sport into the entertainment business. And, uh, you know, one of my greatest achievements is turning my life around as a kid. You know, going to court over 40 times is not normal. And... My life was very negative and I've seen both sides of life, positive and the negative, and I choose the positive every time. But I always knew that I was going to turn my life around because I was too, I had a too much of a shiny star inside of me, too much of a, a bright energy inside of me to, to live that life. So now you've finally seen uh, the real Keith Mason. No, it's amazing. Your whole story from being a rugby player up until now is, is really inspirational and, and incredible. So looking at your film coming out in November, Imperative, you yeah. went from rugby to acting, and I presume you've, you've never been to acting school, anything like this. How was learning to act? Did you find that quite difficult? No, well, obviously, on, on the first time I, I did a film, I just learned my lines. I just learned my lines and went in there and just said them. Uh, obviously, being with Mickey, being a friend, it, it kind of gave me a, bit, a little bit of confidence because he had the confidence in me to do it. I did go to Hollywood and I trained with a guy called Paul Kampoff from Melrose. I did learn some stuff from him, but to be honest with you, I probably don't use any techniques. And I think for me, it's just about learning on the job, you know, learning my lines, uh, understanding the script and just uh, being professional mm. and go in there and give it your best shot. And I think it all comes down to preparation because when I get a script, I go over my lines probably 200 times and I just go over and over and over and over and over again. It's all about repetition. Daniel Craig is, I think, coming up to his last James Bond film. Do we see a future James Bond? <laughs> <laughs> I 
if I got a pound for every time I heard this, I would uh, be a rich man. Listen, I would love, I would love to play James Bond. Who wouldn't? It would be fantastic. And it's and it's a, it's uh, it's quite humbling that people actually would even consider me to be James Bond. To be honest with you, I think I do a great job. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? In 10 years' time, I see myself uh, with my family, enjoying the fruits of my labour and spreading the good word of God because without him, none of this is possible. I'd just like to say thank you so much for taking the time. That was a lot longer than we expected, so I appreciate your time chatting us through your career and everything you're doing now and the brilliant support you're doing for your family. It's all very humbling and and inspirational. So thank you so much. You're welcome, guys. It's an absolute pleasure. Any help you need from me, uh, I think it's fantastic that autism awareness that you guys are doing is is amazing. And if there's anything I can do for you guys, whether it's to send you a poster, to to raise some money, uh, I'm happy to do that. So, and, and, you know, I'd love to jump on another call maybe in another 12 months and just give you a follow-up on where we're at. And uh, thank you guys, young man next to Adam. Been a pleasure speaking well, to you. Uh, I'll say, uh, Keith, this is their first time as well doing their uh, doing this, uh, podcast. So uh, they've done, I think they've done really well. You've done absolutely fantastic. And um, you. you know what? Really proud of you, boys. Thank you. Keith, you've well, been an amazing guest. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, guys. You take care. We just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens our podcast. We will and we appreciate it. It's please come continue, continue to leave uh, reviews and pass your podcast on to your friends and family. Our TWS Sports podcast is released every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so do not miss any episodes. The TWS Sports podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many other podcast streaming apps. The TWS Sports podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.